0: In this episode of the Ownership Economy, Jahad and I chat with Sarah Drinkwater, founder and general partner at Common Magic. Common Magic invests in European and U.S. startups at the pre-seed and seed stage that are building products with community at their core. In the conversation, Sarah walks us through her experience working with early stage founders who are using community engagement and incentive design as a core pillar of their growth. She makes a strong case for aligning returns with community health and growth. It's a fascinating look at a fund manager building an edge across multiple sectors, including open source software, developer tools, fintech, and more by focusing exclusively on the digital community. Please rate and review the episode if you enjoyed it. Hey, Sarah, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much. Glad to be here.
2: So we like to start by getting to know your story a bit. So wherever you like to start, how did you arrive at Common Magic?
1: Yeah, I'm a community builder by profession, but also by nature, I grew up in the West Coast in the UK, in the country, very far from opportunity at the time. And I have been bringing people together for all of my life, I guess. And I started doing it in a technology context about 15 years ago, through a series of startups. Then I went to big tech for a bit. Then I went to America and tech philanthropy for a bit. And the whole time I kept thinking about... You know, to my mind, a lot of the hardest problems of our time are not technical, but social. And yet so few folks invest with that mindset. You know, only 8% of investors in Europe have ever worked in an early stage company, let alone in a company that's not a bank. So Common Magic for me is a summary of, I guess, a combination of lots of interests I have, lots of passions I have, patterns I spotted, and also something that I'd, I'd heard firsthand from founders. You know, I started angel investing in 2018, 19 and because my checks were so small, I had to focus on what I could uniquely help founders with. And it turned out to be, you know, building alignment, building community, whatever term you want to use. And actually, the you know, I actually personally don't love the term community, but I've had to use it because it's the most legible term that we use as a society. Helping founders with that turned out to be really popular as a skill set. So, you know, whether it's the 40 angel investments I have or the three fund investments I have so far, to me, it feels really clear that to have thriving societies, you need good alignment. It seems really clear that... If you want products that will win, and we can debate what winning means in lots of ways, we should be thinking about the groups they're serving and how we bring that group together, how we build moats around products. So Common Magic is an early stage fund focused on products with community at their core across Web 2 and Web 3. And it's just me. It's very early. We're right at the start.
0: Uh,
2: Yeah, I had heard. I think I read it in the Sifted post, which we'll include in the show notes, but I think it was something to the effect of you're the only solo GP in the UK who does not have a air-quote fingers, traditional investment background?
1: Europe. Actually, Europe,
2: oh my god. I'm the first just... female
1: solo GP in Europe that's not been a VC before. And I think I'm the second solo GP in Europe that hasn't been a VC before.
2: Wow. It's crazy. That's, uh, it really tells you how conservative the, the European like uh, ecosystem is, right? We're like, oh, let me just look at, well, you know, I, I trust a person to manage money if they've managed money before. And it's like, cool, how do you get that first money management job? Listen, I'm not here to answer that question.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, right? Like the job of, you know, I think when I started working on Common Magic, I knew that I knew how to work with founders. And I knew that I didn't know how to fundraise, um, which I continue to be learning and do not feel I've cracked yet. But it's interesting, like on the one hand, you get people that fundraise really easily, like fund managers. You know, they come from wealthy backgrounds. They know that community really well. And on the other hand, you know, you know people that know founders. And I think it's so hard to get profiles that can do both. And that's why I think GPs are necessarily rare is you're managing two quite different audiences at the same time. You're selling money to founders. You're selling your strategy to LPs at the same time at the absolute bottom of the market. Trying to do something new is always going to be tough. I think trying to do it now in this context, quite a contrarian move, one could say.
2: Oh, yeah. But today's focus is about you. So we're going to talk about how it's going on your side. So I think you mentioned you know, doing something new and you know, Common Magic, we just mentioned it. Can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of the fund?
1: Yeah, I guess i um, I love companies that are built bottom up. And what I mean by that is that I guess I started working in, in early stage technology in Europe in the 2000s. And very often what used to happen in that era is you build your product in a silo, and then use buy loads of ads to get it out. And this is kind of the early days of kind of Google and Facebook advertising. And I think we all agree now, I think it's commonly held that The advertising incentive has basically ruined vast waves of the internet. Adverts are expensive, they're hard to attribute, they don't work, people bounce. You know, it's not the kind of flourishing, like the whole point of technology to me is kind of freedom and and helping us move forward as a society. That's the whole point of every tool since time began, from like the wheel to the computer. And so when I talk about liking companies built bottom up, the kind of companies that I invest in, products with community at their core they're building something for a very particular audience. I know we're going to be talking about Joke Race today, for example. You know, Joke Race is powerful community infrastructure that helps groups build alignment through the mechanism of contests. And Joke Race's natural audience are communities that want to engage people, that want to take group decisions, reward group decisions, and build alignment. Not that complicated, but actually it turns out in the real world, that stuff is very complicated. And what I liked about Joke Race is they are not only invested in by the kind of people that use their product, but they just have built trust. They built something they know the audience wants. And so they're building bottom up. They're not going away and building something shiny and perfect in in a locked room and then coming out and throwing adverts at us. They're building something where there's a very strong continuous feedback loop where it feels very reciprocal in lots of ways. You know, you're using the product, you're close to the product, you're giving feedback on the product, you're finding other people that you know through the product you know, I think there's 93 angels that invested in Joke Race, including you. Or was that through the funds? I think through the fund.
2: Oh No, it was personally correct.
1: But that's it, right? So it's, it's the people that invested in Joke Race are just the kind of people that I want to be in community with, right? Because they have different specialisms, but they have this shared belief in, you know, not only the power of having fun on the internet with your friends, but the power of products that can serve that goal.
2: Awesome. So then if I were to repeat it back to you, it's very much you believe in products that in some ways, actually derive their moat from being built bottom up, including the community and where the product should be going.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this works in multiple, like something I learned as an angel, when I started out angel investing, I'd only really worked in consumer. Um, You know, i would had a couple of startups then I worked at Google for a long time, although I'd actually run a space for entrepreneurs there. So I worked in big tech, but in a space for entrepreneurs, it's, it's kind of a funny job in that way. And early on when I was angel investing, I did an awful lot of consumer because I had a background in consumer And I felt like I needed to build my credibility with other kinds of products. And over time, I learned that, um, you know, developer tools, I've got a bio company, I've got a couple of deep tech companies now where, you know, the bio company is basically building GitHub for experimental science. You know, my crypto companies vary from kind of strong deep tech infrastructure to kind of community coordination mechanisms. I think the work of building things bottom up for a particular audience actually applies in multiple domains, many more than I originally realized. And that's part of what gave me the confidence to really go ahead with the fund is I'm quite intellectually curious, like, you know, there are very particular things I care about, but I also wanted the fund to be successful in lots of ways. And I think, you know, the term impact is much maligned, overused, bastardized in lots of ways, but I do want to, you know, I want to fund things that bring about flourishing societies, you know, that have impact in the world, but not in the kind of perhaps 2010s definition of impact where it becomes kind of like, Complicated greenwashing, you know, low horizon, yeah. low ambition.
2: Well, I think you you touched on something interesting in that you think that this thesis cuts across multiple different areas, right? So you've crossed many paths in tech, you've gone from Web3, you've gone, you mentioned Google, big tech, all that kind of stuff, but it seems that you've also backed into the fact that this growth mechanism, this way of designing and working with your community in a bottom-up fashion can apply to all kinds of products, all kinds of sectors. So I wanted to ask you, um, what do these sectors, you know, in your experience so far, what do you kind of look for that ties all this together? How do you know, hey, this is actually an opportunity where the community can apply, right? What you know, really gets you
1: go? I mean, I'm still refining it. I think, um, to me, this way of building companies is kind of an ethos. But, you know, it's a mindset in some ways, you know, people have definitely tried to tell me, oh, this is a pure growth mechanism. And I, I kind of resist that in lots of ways, because to me, it's just it's a way of being, you know, in the same way that I like to be in community. I like to work in groups despite being a solo GP, which is a really interesting tension, actually. I guess what I'm looking for when I meet companies, you know, firstly, I normally meet projects or companies when they are they don't have a live product. There's no revenue. I normally meet projects when it's a group of passionate people, sometimes a person where they have an idea, they've tested it, you know, there's very often like a telegram group or a meetup, or there's some kind of symbol of like, who is this for? And nearly always that's the founders natural peer group. That's people that they are closely working with in many different domains. So for example, with Otter Space, when I first met them in Berlin, you know, they were building better badging mechanisms for the DAO community. They themselves, I met them through DAOs, You know, I don't think I would have, there was another team that I met at the same time building a similar product who basically weren't participants or contributors. And I thought, well, okay, who's going to win? You know, it's going to be the person that is already embedded and trusted by this particular group. And so I guess what I'm looking for is, I tend to think of pre-seed products get refined all the time. The exact solution gets refined. But to me, it's more about balancing ultimate vision of the company with flexibility around how that shows up. And kind of, um, you know, I look for kind of deep behavioral insights i guess that's the best way i can put it so for example with the bio company briefly you know they and i have given this example before so apologies to anyone who's mad enough to listen to two podcasts with me on there are trio of operators that span out of lab genius which is a uk-based biotech company and part of the reason they left so it was the chief scientist the chief technical officer and the chief data scientist and they left to work on an idea i met them last summer and they said to me if you are a machine learning biologist When you go to conferences, you're talking about your results. You're not talking about the process. You're not sharing what didn't work. You know, you can get to the end of a two-year experiment and find out somebody in Kyoto did it six months earlier. And so all of these scientists in their day job are using like Notion and Figma, and they're going in the lab and using paper and pen. While at the same time, lots of advances in natural language processing have meant that machine learning biologists can basically write down text experiments that can then become beautiful three-dimensional visualizations of the experiment. You know, much like GitHub, things can be forked, starred, shared, commented on. You know, reputation systems can be built. And why I care about this is if we have more collaboration amongst machine learning biologists, we get to better science, we get to better outcomes. You know, like this is a really interesting. If we're thinking about like, you know, my closest friend works at a gene editing startup, and the stuff she's doing is around helping bones fuse. It's incredibly cool. Like, I want to accelerate because that will help us as a society be healthier. You know, it feels like a, an yeah. incredibly massive commercial market, but also a really compelling use case. That to me, I just, you know, that insight around no one's talking about how we work. I kind of really kept that. I've always kept that in mind with this company is, is that's something they knew about that audience that nobody else did.
2: Got it. And so when you're out there looking for entrepreneurs and teams to invest in, you're really looking at, you mentioned, you call this like behavioral insights. Just what is the sort of what have they kind of identified in their community? What actions are they working on incentivizing that lead to better collaboration and value creation, right? Is that kind of another way of putting it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I lean very strongly towards missionary founders as a whole. Like, you know, I don't really resonate or like they don't resonate with me because it's reciprocal. I tend to resonate less with founders that have gone out looking for an idea to start a startup. You know, I tend to resonate with founders where there's a particular pain they've personally experienced, where they're, you know, they have a drive to kind of solve this. You know, and that can work in multiple domains, but there's nearly always a unique insight driving the creation of this company. Like, why is this the best solution to this problem? You know, and also like, why is venture capital the right kind of funding? I think you and I think about this a lot. Like, there's different kinds of money that work for different things. And the timelines of venture and the expectations of venture are very particular. And I want folks joining me on this journey that understands what success looks like for me and my tiny fund which yeah. is very different from like a mega fund. But I also don't want folks taking venture capital money because they think it's there are always roots. It's about the right capital, the right partnership. You know, it's another yeah. kind of alignment, right?
2: Well, now I want to get into a little bit since you've you know, we've talked about communities of superpower. We've talked about what you're looking at for entrepreneurs and teams. I'm also interested in understanding when a person chooses common magic, when a founder goes, hey, I'm going to work with you. And even before that, you had mentioned 40 angel deals, a couple fund fun deals. Yeah. I'm kind of with you in the same boat where my typical check is pretty small, but I will. Yeah. But people always say, damn, that, that five to 10K check guy will not stop working for us. He's been the most valuable person in the cap table, right? So Love I want to ask you
0: Props. for,
2: yeah, well, same to you, I think, cause this is this why you're here, right? That's how you managed to, to scrap this together, you know, for Tom <laughs> Magic. We... So, and, so I wanted to ask you, you know, when you're in the weeds and some of these, I you mean, know, with founders, right? Okay. What are some of the mistakes maybe you've seen? Some of the things that you're like, hey, you're in this territory where you are co-building with a community. You've got to you got to think about how to engage stakeholders. What are some yeah. of the top things that you would tell founders, hey, you're in that territory, these are the things you should be looking out for. And I could be very in, you know, environment context specific, but just yeah. curious to see what you've seen in your experience.
1: Yeah, I guess um three things founders ask me for help with first, just to ground the conversation. They nearly always ask me for help building out a formal community strategy. By that, I mean, what are the tactics we're going to deploy in the next X months to kind of, you know, create, like make this thing bigger than just us. And that's quite typical when you've had a founder who's who's talking to their natural peer group, when you start to grow the company, that's kind of a conversation. The second thing is first hire. I did an interview this morning with somebody who's a final hire for one of my companies. And the third thing is narrative. So something else I did overnight with a company that I'm actually not signed with yet, fingers crossed we signed very soon this person is doing their first trip to New York and I'm writing the memo with them to send to other investors. Basically, that's like, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. And that's just because he's very short on time. He's super young, first trip to the US. It's like, I, that's just a way I can help him very immediately. I guess um, you know, I'm always learning. But I think one thing I see a lot is, you know, when you are a founder that has a natural peer group that you're talking to and, and building with, at some point in the journey, you have to hand over a bit of that work and bring somebody else in to lead it and the temptation is to either not want to let go of that piece of work or to under hire for it because perhaps you know you're a natural community builder but you haven't really thought about what this job looks like and you end up bringing somebody in who's more of a media intern or someone who just doesn't really who who doesn't you know always the best community hires come from the community right but if you can't find that person you normally always will go and hire somebody and a mistake i've seen made is under hiring and then that person doesn't perform as well as you want them to you know, you feel like they're not a good fit. You know, I do think she hires like any other hire at an early stage company are hard to get right in general. And so I hope to help founders avoid that mistake by giving feedback on the job spec, giving feedback on interviews. But, you know, you're still going to make mistakes a lot of the time with hiring. That's just, the, you know, we've seen this recently with a couple of really compelling examples in Web3. You know, like really strong, resilient communities have opinions. That's a hard thing to, I've had, really hard times managing firsthand big communities and when I say managing you don't own communities you kind of hopefully work to serve and influence them but you know very often there'll be a a disconnect or a disagreement between what the centralized team wants to do community think is right and I think managing that and coming up with the right outcome for the whole project I think there's always going to be lessons there for the central team working on the project because I think it's very hard to get it right because we're always learning with these things. And you know, moving groups of people in the same directions hard. Some feedback that's perhaps more useful than others. You know, you're always gonna to have to navigate disagreement. Often I would say navigate.
2: Got it. I think like this is an interesting spot where you're talking about. I guess you can, in some instance, co- instances, call it corralling the community, or, you know, which I don't really, I don't really like that verbiage for the community, you know, the Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. It feels, it feels like cheap hiding,
1: and that's not. Yeah. People are not cheap, right? They have more agency than that.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, what's interesting, you know, Martin and I have been doing that. I think we're on episode, I don't know, 68 or something like that. So we've been chatting mm-hmm. with quite a few people over over the last almost two years. And, you know early on in those conversations we'd speak with them you know like we spoke with a fellow mark Balin from Myco a while back where he was basically talking about hey we're going to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing in crypto with really inflation we're going to do inflationary inflation on purpose and we're not doing it because money we're doing it because only for our community if you're in it are we inflating it to give are we inflating the token proposed token to get you in and then like you know other people would be like You'd see every deck i'm sure you've seen every deck it's like 10 15 20 for the community or 50 yeah, percent for yeah. the community right i'd be interested to hear from your perspective if there's anything you've seen where you have said actually that's a great starting place for incentivizing a community or maybe there's someone has really stepped outside of the bounds of saying actually this is where we should start with community engagement or community incentive design because i feel like over the years I can say yours now, Martin, (laughs) like we've seen all kinds of things that became standards and then you never see them again, right? So it's really interesting from a person, from your perspective, you know, what have you seen that's really caught your eye and that stakeholder engagement and incentive design?
1: I mean, oh, so many thoughts. I think a core challenge is that very often... When you're designing systems, you do not like systems need to be flexible, right? You know, you're designing like nearly always when you and I see Dex and it's like 20% for the community, nearly always it's first round. The community is super early and the project has barely been, you know, like I think I have one project that was going for six years before I met them, but that was quite an unusual use case, you know, and they had a very thriving GitHub community in a very particular deep tech space, but nearly always I meet companies like in the first year of their life. And so it's really challenging because you're you're designing a system, you know, you and I are bought in for the long term because that's the definitions of how we work with companies. You know, noting that we still expect lots of companies not to work out. But it's very hard to design incentive mechanisms when you're so early and you don't have full oversight yet of what the full product will look like, what the community participation will look like. I think some of the more interesting experiments I've seen So, for example, um, Eden Protocol, who Tom Husson's company, who um, I didn't invest in them, but I thought he was fantastic. And that was a really interesting couple of conversations. You know, their whole thing was around talent liquidity through partnering with developer DAO and through kind of, um, you know, they had this deep understanding that people trust people and that you're more likely to recommend somebody if you have more context about both what your friend's skill is and what the opportunity is, that more context is better and that's making good recommendations is really high value but making bad recommendations isn't which is exactly how it works in the real world you know there are, there's i'm thinking of one person who always sends me quite bad introductions and and i feel bad because i like this person very much but in general i know very well when i get these cold <laughs> when i get a non-double opt-in intro from uh, him again it was yes. like oh, dude no and i think again what you're looking for because there aren't enough papers written about this kind of stuff like there are so many conventions of startup building that in Web2 you can look to. But I think a challenge, you know, particularly in Web3 and in certain aspects of Web2, everything is so emergent. You know, nearly always you're going to your peer group and trying to kind of figure out like, okay, how could we do this? And I think even tokens, like they go in and out of vogue. There was a time when everything would be tokenized. There was a time when token gating was like a, a massive thread. I actually think that's that I think we're kind of, I see the scene moving on a little bit from that right now. I don't know how you're thinking about it, but something I liked about AutoSpace when I first met them is they talked about definancializing DAOs around tokens having meaning yes. beyond their creativity, which I personally really believe in. But I guess it always, when we talk about incentivizing behavior, We always jump to financial incentive, or certainly Web3 we do, but to me, there are many other ways of incentivizing behavior. Like years ago, I did a research project around why people review online, like in the days of me working on Google Maps and doing review platforms. And it was a massive research study, uh, a couple of months with a couple of friends. And what we found was the majority of people that write quality reviews, aka the people that you want to participate, they're participating for altruistic reasons. They're participating because it's just part of their being. They like to help. They want to get compliments from people like them who have benefited greatly from their participation. And that was just always really encouraging for me as people that were incentivized by pure financial gains tended to bounce or tended to be mid or low quality reviewers. And I've always kept that in mind. When founders ask me about how to think about reputation systems, I think so much of what humans want and need is belonging versus financial utility, I guess. Not that I'm saying not
2: both but of course but i think that's a keen point because and we've touched on this on the pod over for the past couple of years really just looking at you know the trade-offs between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation right like yes. you very much want to find some of the theories in the space right like find your first hundred or first thousand fans right and that kind of rings true for a lot of digital yes. products i think right like if yes. you can find that reach then those are the people who will be interested regardless of how much they're being paid. But of course, now that you're here and you're creating value, you should be thinking about how to share it. And right. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I think, you know, over, I'm not sure how much of this Martin can touch on, but there, I can't, I can't name names, but I do think that Martin has a little bit of experience, you know, on that front coming at this from the stakeholder incentive design side of things. And so we've looked at this, I think, what is it, Martin? We've looked at it over the last couple of years. When we were looking at the beginning, people were like, 60% for the community, right? But that's about where it stopped. You know, what have we learned
0: on the pod so far? Yeah, that's, I should tell, that's
1: a good... I'm glad you turned that back on YouTube, because I feel like you probably have more experience here. I'd love to learn, Martin.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's two things that are going on, right? There's kind of a regulatory environment that is forcing people into a mode where they are giving a majority to the community in a way to essentially skirt or be compliant with a set of laws that are unclear, right? And this is specifically around things being properly de- centra- decentralized. And then I think there's a another kind of group of folks that are saying, look, there's compliant exemptions, depending in which jurisdiction that you're in, where you can essentially structure some sort of incentive design for the community that's tied to quasi-equity that that. Gives an ownership position or gives voice rights to whatever stakeholder group is creating value. And the truth of the matter is, like most other things in an early stage startup, you're not going to know how to do that. And so you shouldn't be giving away 50% of your cap table the same way you shouldn't be giving 50% of your cap table to any VC or anyone who's, or maybe even any co founder that's not on a vesting schedule. And so I think in some ways, the regulatory environment is at odds with like the way that we should actually be designing for community incentives and for stakeholder incentives. I think what's more important is than just the ownership rights is, or probably not more important, but is equally important as the ownership rights is that you really have strong voice rights, like minority protections for stakeholders. And that's what you see more traditionally in co-determination law in Europe and some of the structures that are a little bit less malleable, like one member, one vote, that guarantee that voice rights, but have trouble attracting growth capital and folks that are more incentivized by upside through incentive compensation.
1: Yeah. And you're making me think of that yield merit example last year where we came up across against the limits of Dow governance as well. If I remember correctly, and I may be wrong, the Dow kind of highlighted a lead investor at the last round. I think it was a spin-out company and basically said, this investor hasn't given us any benefit and they should go. And then, of course, the investor came in and said, hey, we signed a term sheet, you can't do that. And so then, you know, there was a vote in favor of pushing out this investor. And, you know, again, I think um, I can only imagine how disengaging that felt for the participants who voted in that. You You know, not only understanding there was a lot of information rights they didn't have, but also understanding that legally they could not do this thing that they'd been told that, you know, they were able to kind of propose. And again, partly that maybe that speaks to... I think we're still building the muscle of, of self-governance in lots of ways. I think we're still very early. Um, but I remember that being a very particular episode where I was thinking about like, okay, we talk about giving communities voice. What does that mean in practice? You know, whether it's Web3 or Web 2 what does that mean? And how, how many CEOs and founders truly want to listen versus this being lip service or something that they're doing for kind of, you know, marketing reasons or kind of reputation reasons, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think to that end, you know, there are going to be community members that don't add any value. Right. And yeah. so the same way that there are investors that don't add any value, right. You get someone in, you think they're going to add value. And, you know, sometimes the people that have, that put in the smallest checks are the biggest pain in the ass to, to work with. Right. And so i not looking at, at you two, you know, but like, like I've had, you know, I remember in one of my past ventures, like, what of the dudes that put in this false check was just, it was super painful to work with on a day-to-day basis. I was like, you know, you own nothing of the cap table. Like, why are you giving me all this grief? So I think having an understanding of that, there is kind of a diversity of how people are going to engage yeah. with a startup, whether they are an investor or whether they are a value adding, a stakeholder who is adding value to the firm quantitatively or qualitatively, however you define it through the the stakeholder incentive program or community incentive program, I think is important for a founder to understand when going into this. And again, I think that goes back to, from a design principles perspective, having the ability to improvise and not backing into a structure too soon and how much that's at odds with kind of the current regulatory environment right now.
1: Well, regulatory and also the venture capital funding cycles, right? To your point around... If you're putting in place a cap table at in January, say, but you really haven't had time to go deep on what the community, like how the, you know, how you work with your community, how they can serve you, how you can serve them, et cetera. Because I think to your point, I'm quite interested in kind of citizen advisory boards in general. You know, a lot of my Web2 companies have some kind of mechanism where they hold up the voice of the customer or the community. It's just something that I think is increasingly popular amongst the kind of companies that I like to back. And You know, they've really worked to define their terms quite clearly at the start to say, this is advisory, there are no legal rights, like we will listen, that's the whole point of this is to have open conversation. And so far, that's worked well in terms of, you know, community members that are in that advisory group, that they understand that the company still may do something they don't entirely agree with, but at least they will have deeper information about the context of why that decision got made. I mean, I still think it's imperfect, but at the same time, all of these things are beautiful tests, aren't they?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And I think something both of you touched on that's interesting to dive into a little bit more is, you know, we touched on the sort of the founder mindset, we touched on your thesis and how you got here. But another really key thing that I don't think people who understand much, if they're not in the space, is that these rounds don't happen by themselves, right? There's a lot of folks who either go, oh, we have the same thesis, or we're a generalist fund, and we don't care that much, we'll just put money in, what have you. So I'm curious, to now here, you're like, you're not leading rounds, so yep. you ostensibly, you come in there, maybe there's some angels investing alongside you, maybe your first yep. money in. How has it been to sort of build syndicates around this or go to you know lead yep. checks and other people and say, hey, this is a really great opportunity, and I think it's great because I'm the community person. There's a moat being built here on community. Yeah. What's the investor sentiment? Do they understand
1: this? Yeah, I mean, I think I designed my fund to be collaborative. I didn't want to be in a position where I was kicking other people out of the way. That's just not how I like to work. Leaving aside the fact that it's 2023 and I couldn't raise that much money, but to me, I, I like funds that are composable in that way. And that if you're a great founder, you're like designing your brand. You have your kind of trad lead investor, and then you have your mix. I guess um, it's like anything really. There are folks you trust that you know have certain specialisms. You know, anything to do with public goods, I'm going to send it to Scott. You know, Dermot and I look at a lot of and I look at a lot of stuff together. You know, there are very particular funds and individuals that I like to work with depending on the opportunity. So you know, the company that I was working with overnight, who I won't say their name, because we're not formalized yet. They're great. You know, they are in a very particular domain that I happen to know. And so, you know, you go out to your trusted friends, and you hope that the fact that you've come to conviction on this team and this thing means that they will take it more seriously. And, you know, I I think like everything, you build trust over time, and you build trust through how you behave towards people, both founders and funds, you know, I think um. It's one thing getting somebody to accept your money at the start. It's another thing being genuinely useful over time. And I think for small funds, that's kind of how you win. You know, you don't have the brand of like a big name fund, you know, Sequoia, and I'm sure they're not, but a big name fund might be able to kind of put their money in and then step back and kind of find it on with it. I'm not saying that Sequoia do at all, but I'm just saying a big name fund can do that. But I think for small funds like ours, you know, you have to work to earn the right to be in that position constantly. And that can show up in a number of ways. And to me, so the last fund investment I made, my second company, you know, I bought in three angels, all of whom have very particular domain knowledge in the deep tech space this company's in. I don't have knowledge in that space. So these are people I went to, just friends, when I was diligencing the company and looking at them. And then one of them said up front, I'd like to invest. And then two more I went back to and said, hey, actually, you'd be great to kind of come and join this. You know, and the fund, the check they put in, it's really about having access to the people. You know, I personally believe in small checks. You know, my fund is a small check investor. The angels I put people in touch with often will invest 5, 10K, but it really is about having access to someone that, you know, will reply to emails, will be on text with you, will help you solve problems, will make introductions, will be useful. You know, I think about, I guess I always think about investments and fund building in general is there's a group that comes together around one opportunity. There's a group that comes together around the next. Things are always evolving and changing. And, you know, we kind of win together. I think that's just how these things work in general.
2: I and I think like this is also not the you know. So you're getting out there, getting you're getting the leads interested potentially, or if it's a smaller group, you yes, just form yes. a syndicate. That totally makes sense. This is also though from a little bit of research I've done and also just seen over the years. I remember that uh, I think it was Lolita Taub had done a, a community fund like three or four years ago. I think she's doing the same thing ish with Ghana's Ventures, and yes. there's also like uh, I'm pretty sure there was a i, I just bridge. don't read this yeah exactly community here's that ones, one yeah. and then i yeah. thought for a second that andre's and orwitz was in the space because they released this huge like go to community guide if you remember that like remember, go to market go to community yeah, i
1: exactly. mean look i check everything happening with the c word in it's yeah. like a joke in my household don't say the c word <laughs> which yeah, is think. extra
2: because you're british
1: yeah i know <laughs> There were a couple of funds that came out when I was living in. So I came back from the US 18 months ago. And when I was living in the US, you know, solo GPs really haven't been a thing in Europe for that long. But there were funds I was tracking. So like Flybridge's Community Fund, which Lolita was also involved in, you know, Ganas, I think, variant, you know, you look at the ownership economy thesis and I think it's very related to how I kind of see the world. And, you know, Legion moving from creator economy to ownership economy to me is very interesting. I think about what I do is. I think all of us are kind of identifying a certain way of building companies. And I actually would also put open source in there too. You know, Mm -hmm. open source totally rests on community, you know, massive. In the same way, there are interesting things happening in crypto right now around how we behave and who we partner with. There's, you know, HashiCorp, massive announcement yesterday around changing the open source licensing model. You know, again, that's a very interesting baggy movement of people brought together under an ideology with a certain amount of hardcore purists in so like very interesting analogies with web three in my mind. And you know, even in open source, you have OSS capital, but there are not a lot of funders of who love funding commercial open source. There's some now, but it's it's still very emergent. I guess I think of all of these funds as, you know, all backing a different way of building. You know, there was the era for blitz scaling that to me feels kind of a bit cliche and archaic now. um and I think all of this new wave of funds, yours, too, you know, all of us are trying to basically, you know, think of money differently and think of partnerships differently. And I think that's just quite good for the scene in general.
2: Yeah, and I think part of, you know, what you mentioned there with open source is that the opportunity for community-focused funds like yours, I think, is to help open source communities thrive Mm because there are open source communities, but, you know, I mean... We're both close to GitHub within the Git, or sorry, Git and Gitcoin and the the Gitcoin synthesis story, right? Like that was one of the key things is that there's always three or four humans who are not being paid at all and are creating immense value for all kinds of companies. And that manifests in things like, HashiCorp is the the you know story of the moment but that same thing happened with Elastic right like yeah. 5 or 6 years ago right so where nice. people are like oh the the big companies are going to continue profiting from our open source business model and we've now built like serious market cap behind this our private at least private market value so we it's really interesting to see it from that perspective and that in the market because those folks just see no room to go there's it's very binary it's like we continue doing this thing or we move to business source license. <laughs> we I think that's
1: right. exactly it, right? And I think, um, you know, when I was at a MIDIR network in 2018, 2019, I did a lot of funding around the ethical boundaries of open source and funded particularly Coraline Emker, who's the lead of ethical open source, who's in the name, who was doing really interesting. Like she'd developed the Hippocratic license, which basically was a particular license that allowed individual maintainers contributors to kind of restrict who could use their stuff. But I think I think there's so there's that lens of like what do we use things for? You know, how do you contribute and be assured that your your code isn't being used to do something heinous to you? But then there is the other lens around how do you balance the beauty of certain things being open? And I, I personally really lean towards the core ethos around, you know, transparency, forkability, you know, things being bigger than ourselves. I love that and I lean to it. But I think we see this pattern over and over and over again around exploitation, hard to scale business models, uh, you know like extraction around business models. I think um I think it's really interesting because so many of my companies uh, use open source in some way and they have a two-part model whereby they have certain aspects of the company on open, you know the open source is a way of emphasizing the ideology of the company of building in public, but at the same time they have a paid for service over here. And open source in that way becomes kind of some kind of growth channel, which feels like wrong, but also right, but also wrong. It's complicated. And I think you're right. We've seen the same pattern time and time again around, you know, people willing to do the work and then the free rider problem where other folks are willing to exploit it. And I don't know yeah. how, and, and the very binary conversation happening around yeah, open source. And it's like, to me, that's yeah. not the solution. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. And I think, like I said, I think that search space, is this is the space of alpha for your fund and others to basically be like, what is the economic model that can be built here around the value that's being built? Because there's just so much of it and it inevitably leads to situations like they're super binary where I do think even just from looking at things like Gitcoin, there are many, many, many gray areas that can maybe not be exploited in the business sense, but more like yeah. in the biological sense, like that there's a niche to exploit that has formed around, you know, mm-hmm. particular ecology right and and i think that's a really interesting idea for funds like yours
1: yeah i mean i think you know from the perspective of august 2023 where i feel like you know three months into the fund being live so much to think about so much to work on and i think the problem that you mentioned is such a an interesting one of you know ecologically how we think about the evolution of communities how we think about the evolution of fairness like new economic models in general I just hope that lots of smarter people than me are thinking about it at the same time and collectively we advance things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it has to be. So it has to be collective because it's just actually the way, oddly enough, it's just the way that the venture capital works. (laughs) Like you're not out there doing this yourself, right? You're you're fine. Of course, you're helping founders yourself, but you're aggregating capital around their needs with other people who believe in the thing that these folks are doing, right? So it's always a collective effort.
1: And that's a really interesting point, right? So part of the job of funds like yours and mine is not only to kind of sell capital to founders and support founders; it's also to fundraise, and it's also to advance our personal manifestos or collective manifestos with aligned, full-on funders, <laughs> you know, right? Like cause, cause is, think, um, that's a kind of lesser-known part of this work. Is it's not just about you helping founders thrive. For them to thrive, they need capital at the next rounds.
0: Mm-hmm. You know
1: depending on however whatever capital is appropriate for them to grow and so that partly depends upon you and the founder being able to sell the vision of this thing in a way that is appropriate and right and compelling and backable
2: exactly and therein lies that lies the rub and for actually from there that's a great sort of went to dovetail into i think kind of last bit we wanted to drive home with you here actually which is we mentioned a couple of companies. You talked about, you know, the deep tech bio company that was really building a lot of value collaboratively that caught your eye. You know, you have forty investments. I love to dig into one actually as as the final sort of chapter here, because yeah. we just to show people, you know, maybe maybe as they say, there are various sayings, here's soup to nuts, or you know, from the start to finish, kind of. Can you tell us a little bit about one of the companies in your portfolio that you think is really exemplary of this community-focused building value-building opportunity, right? That makes can really punch some investors in the face who might be listening to this and going, Oh, I get it now. Right. Like it'd be great if you have one off the top of your head that we could riff on. Yeah.
1: So the best example would be a company called thosebeyond.io. And they are basically building Pixar for Web3. And when I met them, the co-founding team were game designers you know award you know they basically built beautiful worlds before and the first game they released fates uh was just this incredible narrative game with a very strong participatory element and it had a kind of two-part structure in that you know anybody for free could be in the discord and be solving puzzles but you had to buy an nft to get access to a certain amount of kind of as you know like rockets leaving earth to go to space and i think the narrative behind it was really about kind of Collaborativity, if that's a word, collaboration, I guess. You know, so many narratives or games are around the idea of leaving Earth in a hurry and it's this hopeless thing. And they really wanted to reframe it and make it about leaving Earth in a really hopeful way and going to an asteroid. So they use NASA data. When you buy an NFT, you go to your own asteroid and you have to partner. So, you know, you buy this little pod, but you have to partner with the folks around you to basically solve puzzles inside your pod to start planting your asteroid and making it an ecology and what i loved about this was you know they have forty-five thousand players in the first couple of weeks it was really something that was built in a really participatory fashion you know it had this beautifully polished graphics but at the same time was really built with a group and they've now evolved what they're building to become a kind of more collaborative game engine i think folks dismiss games the entire time but if you look at it You know, there's that famous Chris Lyons quote about everything new starts like a toy. There's an awful lot we can learn from game design for how we think about building uh, thriving societies. And I thought their mechanism of group farming in the digital realm on space, on chain, was incredibly cool, incredibly interesting. People loved it. I'm really excited. They're beginning to chip feed out pieces from their next game or their next game engine, I should say. And I'm really excited by that.
2: Well, I think that you touch on a lot of interesting things here, right? Because the thing is, people could be listening to this, or investors could be listening to this, like, oh, okay, great, like, community, sure, game engine, whatever. But, like, when you think about the opportunity from the perspective of just the game engine market, there's Unity 3D, and it's a massive, massive company, and everyone uses it, right? So, if you think about this from the perspective of, like, actually, they could be designing incentives and ownership around a new community-owned game engine that actually benefits from the contributions of the people who work on it or who use it, that ends up becoming a pretty interesting you know, I mean, proposition.
1: You know, Unity's right at the start of my fund pitch deck because I think of, if I think about massive examples of the kind of things I hope to back, you know, Unity had a huge IPO, beloved by the groups that use it. And I think to your point, you know, historically games have been top-down. They've been like things that we give to people. And again, the team that are building those beyond, you know, one of them has been a Dungeons & Dragons master, a dungeon master for the last 15 years. And so I think a lot of what he's learned around incentives and guiding people on this journey, but letting them guide themselves, like giving them parameters, but allowing people to kind of fully express themselves through the, the mode of gaming has really influenced how they've designed that product. And I think it's just very, ethos-wise, it's exactly the kind of thing I like in lots of ways. Even though I would not have said I'm a game investor, at all like I don't you know, do I understand games no do I understand
2: this yes absolutely that makes a ton of sense and I think like for me just the plus one the get no game investor thing sorry I have to bring this up all the time because I'm pitched games 100% of the time and I think uh yeah. that's a that's a really interesting example though just like you said because this this really ties together a lot of things right when you just think you know unity 3d is in the front of your deck unity 3d is a 13 billion dollar company today yeah. right and like Yeah, okay, that's not sure. Some people would poo-poo that, but at its height you know, during the peak of all that, it was still even something like a $70 billion company. So there's a ton of market cap to be built in the space if we just understand who the agents are, what they want, and what they've contributed, right? Like that's a very interesting opportunity. Cool. Mm -hmm. So I think like on that front, I just wanted to then give you a second, just kick it over to you and say, where can people follow your work online and stay up to date on Common Magic?
1: Yeah, I'm so easy to get hold of. It's embarrassing. Um, My website is commonmagic.xyz. My email is sarah at commonmagic.xyz. And on Twitter, I am my full name, Drinkwater or underscore commonmagic. Thanks.
2: Nice. Well, thank you very much for joining, Sarah.
1: Thank you.